You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Everybody, this is Danny Anderson welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, this will be a little bit of an extra one because I wanted to get one more out in November of 2019 for very specific reasons that you'll find out here in just one minute. And joining me uh, today for this very kind of interesting and special episode is Nathan Gilmore of the Christian Humanist uh, Podcast and professor of English at Emmanuel College. Uh, Nathan, how you doing? Hey, hey, doing pretty well. Uh because of Emmanuel's uh, funky calendar that Todd Pedler enjoys so much mocking, <laughs> uh, we are actually done with classes tomorrow and on into finals on Friday. So by the time folks are listening to this, I might be done teaching for 2019. <laughs> and uh, are you doing one of those funky December classes? I'm actually doing two of them, but they're both online, so ah, I don't I have to commute. So nice. that'll be... Uh, some pleasant time off of the road. Yeah, nice. We're actually changing our academic calendar a little bit this year. And so we're actually instituting a January term, which many people have already. And so what that means is for this year, I have like six weeks between semesters because um, spring semester doesn't start until like the 22nd or something of January. So I I have like an extra long time between semesters, which will be kind of nice and well-earned. I've recently gotten old. I don't know if the listeners know this yet. I, uh, I I hurt my leg by jumping up into the air to grab a projector screen, and I came down. And now I have a cane, so um, I'll, I'll use the. Uh, that's I was was not old yesterday. Today I am old because that happened. Yeah, and I was so. going to say the Sphinx's riddle plays into this somehow. <laughs> Absolutely. So anyway, fortunately we have a wonderful PT department, and they loaned me a cane and an ice pack. So um, I'm doing okay. So um, anyway, so Nathan. You came up with the idea for this. You kind of alerted me to this, and I think it's a great idea. We definitely need to take advantage of November of 2019 for some reason. Why don't you talk us into why? Well, certainly, well, listeners will remember if they listen to the Christian Humanist podcast that a few years ago uh, we released a special episode on the day that uh, Marty McFly entered into the uh, year. I don't even remember. Was it 2015? Michael Farmer's going to kill me. Uh, but at any rate. It sounds right, actually, uh, yeah. Uh, well, what is it now? That sounds right, because it was 1985, so it must have been like a... Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right, yeah. that's right. So, uh, one of the uh, movies that I enjoyed uh, as a teenager and revisited in college, but really hadn't come to since, uh, opens with a title screen that says November 2019, and it is Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, so, I managed to elude the cops and their flying cars and... <laughs> You know, I'm pretty sure my uh, vice president of academics is not a replicant, so we can <laughs> record this now. He's in his office dipping his hand into uh, liquid nitrogen and just, uh, yeah, uh, right now. That's right. And, yeah. That's right. These are the problems in uh, 2019 that we face. <laughs> yes. It, that's the problem with setting movies into the not too distant future is that technology never goes where you expect it would. It's that's never exactly going, right. It's never going quite <laughs> as fast as you thought. So, um, but we may be 
be in just as much of a dystopia uh, in our own ways. Who knows? Uh, maybe we could talk about that kind of thing as we get into this. Yeah, I love Blade Runner. I, I taught I taught a science fiction film class a couple of years ago now. And um, it was actually 2017 because Blade Runner 2049 um, had just been released on video. And so um, I, I was able to include it in the uh, in the sequence of that class. And so we watched Blade Runner and then I watched 2049 with them. I hadn't seen it in advance and we did a sort of compare and contrast and uh, and that kind of thing. And, and it, uh, it in its own right of a wonderful movie, a really, really great and interesting movie um, and a more than successful sequel to a classic and so oh definitely I, I agree with that yeah yeah and so we'll, we'll, we'll probably hit on both of them because uh, I think they kind of work in, in conversation here a little bit and uh, and Blade Runner itself is kind of an old war horse for uh, English types to uh, to break down and analyze right and so uh, I'm sure that um, people already gotten their fill of just that movie so we're going to try and juice it up with some other things here um, I guess one thing I want to start with is the kind of nature of these films they're both sci-fi films for sure but they're also rooted deeply in kind of noir and detective fiction right and so um and what's interesting to me about that uh is that detective fiction is about the assertion of uh of truth right it's uh epistemology and so uh both of these films are strictly in postmodernism, and so that's an interesting conflict when when you're talking about detective fiction, which is about truth in an environment where truth is is uh, slippery at best, right? And so I think that's one of the things certainly, that certainly. that make these uh, movies uh, interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, on their well, genres? Well, the, the 2019, uh, you know the the look of the movie, and especially the score is just so film noir. I mean the uh, the the saxophone solos that just won't quit. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, and, and the Harrison Ford voiceovers. How could I forget? Oh, the voiceovers. Okay. Oh, so you, uh, okay. You that's know. one thing I want to talk about though. So you watched the original, uh, cut the theatrical yeah, yeah. cut. Okay. Okay. Um, so you didn't, or I have, I've seen them all. Okay, um, all right. and so I, we could so talk about them about the difference there. That, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, the original, uh, cut that Ridley Scott, the director had put together, the studio wasn't sure it was going to work for an audience, right? Because it's it's uh, um, it withholds information and it's it's enigmatic, right? And so they imposed a uh, kind of more traditional narrative structure for the theatrical cut, the original theatrical cut, in which Harrison Ford does this very film noir voiceover um, explaining what's going on as as it's going on. And in later years, you have the director's cut and then the final cut. And I've seen all of them. I've seen all of them so many times. They all kind of work together in my head. Um, and it's interesting that, um, um, oh gosh, Villanueva, the director of the uh, of 2049, he actually sees his movie as a sequel to both the director's cut and the final cut. Like he sees his okay, movie okay. as kind of a resolution of both. Um, and so um, I don't know if that is helpful information, but um, he doesn't dismiss the, the theatrical cut at all. So, um, but okay, uh, good, so yeah, yeah. So go ahead uh, about the uh, voiceovers and detective fiction and, and noir and all that. Yeah. So I mean, really though, at that point it departs for me because this is not someone who is trying first and foremost to solve a case, but to hunt down and to retire these replicants. And of course, part of what this film plays with uh, all over the place is the euphemistic character uh, of, you know, power, right? 
Uh, and, you know, again, Danny made reference to postmodernism. You know, this is what uh, someone like Michel Foucault or Stephen Greenblatt would point to as uh, the post-spectacle mm. character power, right? Uh, so, you know, I mean, in in some, well, I mean, you know, let me pick a historical moment. You know, if you're talking about the 18th century, it is a violence of spectacle, right? You put someone in a guillotine, you cut their head off, everyone sees the head roll into the basket. Uh, in the 20th century, you know, in the Cold War especially, you get things like the practice of disappearing in Pinochet's Chile, mm. or you get the gulags or the, uh, you know, the Stasi that, you know, don't necessarily shoot people in the street so much as you, they just disappear one day and they never come back. Uh, so, I mean, it's a shift from spectacular power, everyone sees it, to invisible power. You see the ripples, but you never see the active power. And, you know, this one seems to be, uh, or, you know, Blade Runner, the, the 2019 episode, uh, seems to be a continuation of that invisible kind of power. We don't even say that we are killing the replicants. We say that we are retiring them, Right. right? But say a little bit more about the what what you see as uh, some other detective elements of this one. I think twenty forty nine is is more traditionally a detective story, but twenty nineteen I see more as a a bounty hunter story, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is in twenty nineteen it's more existential, and I would actually put Roy the the replicant in that position, he's the one sort of searching for the answers to his creation kind of. Right. And so there's, there's sort of like a mystery to his creation that he's trying to solve. Right. And so, and in, uh, 2049, the, the Ryan Gosling's character of K, the, the cop, right. Joe K slash Joe, um, who's the, who's the blade runner, uh, the replicant blade runner in 2049. Um, he's, much more recognizable as a detective solving a, a mystery, right? Because he's on the side of the law and he is uh, solving a, 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 a mystery and, and the plot unveils that mystery as he discovers it, right? Um, and I think what the original Blade Runner does is it takes that same kind of story, but it's like purely postmodern um, and, and it uh, makes it purely kind of philosophical uh, rather than um, tangibly like um, in, in our kind of it, tangibly physical. Right. And so there's not like a tangible, tangible physical. It's about, he's discovering the mystery of his existence, right. Um, while trying to solve the problem of his existence um, and Harrison Ford, and maybe it's just the performance of, um, of Rucker Hauer is so overpowering in that movie. He feels like the main character of that movie to me, the more I watch it. Now, um, now Danny, here's where I, I, I want you to talk to me a little bit about how you see him as a detective figure, though, because I see, for instance, uh, when he makes his way to Tyrell's apartment, um, I don't see that as a quest for truth so much as, first of all, a quest for self-preservation. Yeah. And then once he realizes that that's not a possibility, I mean, the only quest that remains for him is the sadistic, you know, inflicting of suffering on everyone in his world. Once he realizes that his life cannot be extended, uh, he's going to make sure everyone else regrets being alive. Yeah. And so it's nihilistic a little bit. Um, is that sort like of a little bit? <laughs> more than a little bit? Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> well, and I guess what I, what I mean to say is that it, 
it takes one of these traditional epistemological journeys and situates it strictly in, in a postmodern context. And I think that, that, and so it looks different. It comes out different. You're right. It, it isn't the same thing as what K does in 2049. Um, but, and I think part of the difference though, for me, is a question of how these two films deal with postmodernism. Blade Runner is 1982, I think. Is that right? 1982? That yeah, sounds right. right. Um, and so, which is interesting because it's very on the heels of Empire Strikes Back and Harrison Ford is doing some very kind of chancy, artsy, uh, big budget uh, sci-fi movie um, after that that's very different than Star Wars. So that that's a side uh, note. But in 1982, it's sort of like the height of postmodern art right and so i think the original blade runner is firmly entrenched in the perhaps nihilistic traditions of postmodernism right and so i think the way roy's epistemological quest goes is a function of how it's how that film deals with postmodernism all right and i think one of the things that 2049 does differently is that it has a much it's trying to emerge out of postmodernism, right? And I, we did an episode when I was guesting on uh, the Christian Humanist podcast several years ago now on uh, metamodernism. Do you remember that yeah. with uh, Michael Our, Farmer? Uh, yeah. And and I wonder if you could put 2049 in that camp, something that is seeking authenticity in the same kind of ostensibly meaningless environment. And, and so, and, and I therefore, I think that that movie tries to reimpose this more traditional, more optimistic uh, kind of uh, structure on the same detective narrative because it's trying to emerge out of the kind of dead ends of postmodernism. So I guess that's what I'm saying um, is that they're both kind of detective stories. One is firmly entrenched and seeks no way out of postmodernism. One is coming out of postmodernism and seeks to create new meaning um, and seeks for there to be such a thing as meaning. Um, whereas the oh, first sure. movie doesn't well, actually, it gives up that, on that. Let's turn to that one for a moment because I think that, you know, first of all, the, the literary illusions in 2049 are, I mean, oh, uh, yeah. pretty straightforward, pretty heavy, right? I mean, you know, the, the main character's name K yeah. is <laughs> the name of the, uh, I can't remember if he's the narrator or just the center of consciousness in Kafka's the castle. Um, he is the center. He is not the narrator. I don't think. Yeah. Okay, not the narrator. Okay. Yeah. It's been a few years since I read that. Um, and then, you know, I mean, uh, just to lay out some plot details and by the way, listeners, if you didn't know already, we we're going to spoil the heck out of these. Oh yeah. We're going to spoil the heck out of these, <laughs> but I don't think we've given it away too much yet, but by this point you should have gone and watched them if you want to listen to this. So <laughs> sure. That's your plot, listener, but, <laughs> uh, you know, K in you know the castle is this person who finds himself you know confronted with this uh endless and opaque bureaucracy uh you know he can't get any answers he can't get any truth so on and so forth pretty obvious you know uh parallel there yeah right uh then you know k in blade runner uh you know gets sent on uh an investigative mission right uh, because they discover that one of the replicants, and by the way, if you've not seen these films, replicants are, of course, the uh, more human than human androids, uh, you know, manufactured by the Tyrell Corporation. Uh, but they discover that one of them has uh, become pregnant and, as far as they can tell, had a C-section delivery. And so somewhere out there, 
uh, is a roughly 30 year old replicant that was actually born rather than made in a vat. Yeah. You know, that is, uh, you know, one of the grand philosophical questions of that movie, you know, Kay very remarkably says, uh, to Joshi, his human superior there in the Blade Runner division, mm-hmm. that if you're born, then you have a soul. Yeah. Which, you know, we can, we can return to that theologically later if we want to, but for right now, what's interesting is over the course of the film, and we'll be talking about the mechanisms by which he does this, uh, he comes to discover that he was the one born from a woman. Uh, and so at well, that point it's in her, I've, I'm gonna, let's not give it away. Yet, yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> I I'm, I'm trying to narrate this from case perspective. I gotcha, right? So I gotcha. at that point, uh, his, you know, his virtual reality girlfriend who will also return to in a while. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Joy. Uh, you know, she says, you have a soul now. We need to give you a new name, which is a very biblical moment. You know, yeah. at this moment of existential transformation, he gets a new name and his new name is Joe, uh, which is, of course, the name of the savage from Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Mm. So he goes from someone who is in the system of the system, you know, uh, stymied by the system to someone who all of a sudden becomes an outsider looking in. And what's fascinating to me is that even later in the movie, when he discovers that he wasn't the one born of a woman, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. uh, You know, the question lingers, uh, did he have a soul all along? Because if he was able to imagine himself as a soul, then, you know, I mean, I think you can make the ethical case that in fact we should treat him as a being who is a soul. But I'm talking too much, Danny. What else is going on there? Um, no, I just want to go back and, and, and fill in a couple things that you said. I think the Brave New World reference is really fitting because the 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 power of this world is kind of held together through like just ubiquitous pleasure, right? And so there's just yeah, like consumerism, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, there's just yeah consumerism all the way down to the body, right? I mean, there's just naked women everywhere in this movie. This movie is a much more adult movie, I think, than uh, the first one was. Um, but I think there's actually a reason. I think there's a good reason for all the nudity in it. I think um, it's it's part of the point it's trying to make there about power. Um, well, and they say out loud what was implied in the 2019 episode which is that these replicants are manufactured not only for manual labor and not only for to be, you know, killers, uh, but also to be, I mean, sex robots. Yeah. And it seems to me one of their primary um, focuses now. Right. And so, yeah, that's a really interesting um, and we'll talk about women um, um, exclusively in this movie. But, yeah, I think that the Brave New World reference works on that level. And also, I think when you say about the the theological ramifications of the discovery of this uh, body. It's, and it turns out, should we give out who the body turns out to be? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Go um, ahead. It, it, it turns Listeners, out watch the movies. Yeah, for sure. And, and honestly, I can't recommend the second one enough. It, it's a long movie. It's big and epic. It's like an old school Kubrickian sort of sci-fi film that, and almost like Tarkovsky too. It just sort of, it's visually gorgeous. Right. And it's like, it's meant to be seen on the big screen. Now, this is part of Martin Scorsese's uh, argument. This is one of the movies he was talking about. I think that's yeah, meant to be on a Michael Farmer tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's meant to be on uh, the big screen because it's just 
just a, a feast for the eyes and uh, and just philosophically fascinating too. It's just a great movie. Um, but you'd mentioned how the discovery of this body, which turns out to be Rachel from the original Blade Runner, the replicant who um, Harrison Ford's Deckard uh, runs away with at the end, they uh, conceive a replicant baby um, outside the uh, manufacturing system, right? Um, and so you talk about how that has like sort of theological consequences, but there's also like severe political consequences there. And this is why um, Kay's boss wants him to kill that baby because if the replicants find out, <laughs> it's like there's like a major civil war she sees going um, between. And Robin Wright's line, the world is built on a wall, is just chilling. It is, yeah. Absolutely, right. And she's great in this movie, by the way, too, as you would expect she would be, right? And so, not a surprise. <laughs> yeah, she's great in everything, right? And so, um, but, uh, but yeah, no. And so, it's I, that's the only thing I would add to what you said about um, that question there. And I think you're totally right that there's um, that discovery coming out of the, and that makes it for a more structured detective story, right? He has to discover who, first of all, these bones are, and then who the child was, and then he followed, then he has one hunch about who the child was and then there's another and so plot wise this feels very standard detective story um um, right and i think partially my point was that that's partially because it's seeking to emerge out of postmodern nihilism so whereas the first one set up like a, a, a detective story it can't get there and so it just lashes out in anger um and so that that's sort of where i would um kind of draw the distinctions there um and that's interesting because I, I and I haven't seen this as much as you have, so I still want to hear your case for it. But I've never seen Roy Batty. As, and I, by the way, if I slip and call him Ned Batty, I have no <laughs> idea why I do that, but I do. Like from Ned <laughs> but, Beatty? Like Ned Beatty? Yeah, exactly. That like Ned Beatty. I don't know. <laughs> Every time I have a conversation about this movie, I slip and call him Ned Batty. But, you, know, you know, I actually, speaking of Ned Beatty, I actually, I saw him once in New York City. I, I rode the elevator to the top of the Empire State Building with Ned Beatty. <laughs> he was he was right. randomly in line at the same time I was. <laughs> it was very strange. Anyway, I, I see Roy Batty as someone who is who already knows all of the truth he ever wants to know. Okay. What he wants is to extend his mm. lifespan because he already knows that he's doomed. Yeah. And when that doesn't pan out, then the sadism and the psychopathy that we've seen bubbling up all through the film just become just full throttle, you know, destroy the world violence all the way up to his last 90 seconds on screen, which I still can't figure out 23 years later. Well, I guess let's, let's talk about that. And then it's a fair point. I mean, like I said, there's an, it's a stretch for me to paint him as a kind of uh, detective hero right but um because i do think he ends up as the hero of the movie what's that whereas k pretty clearly is i mean absolutely he, yeah. even after he is you know discharged from the blade runners and even after he becomes a fugitive he is still after the truth and in fact when he discovers the truth i mean it's a it's a genuinely aristotelian moment of revelation right uh i mean his character changes when he realizes he's not the one born from a woman yeah yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm not even arguing that. And what I would say is, I think the difference is, I, I think he is trying to put together 
missing pieces of knowledge, right? He, he knows he needs to extend his life and he's trying to find the mystery of how to do that. And I guess that's as far as I would extend that right there. Yeah, but, but it's instrumental knowledge. It's not existential. Yeah, yeah. No, that, I, I could say that. I could I could see okay, that point. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Um, anyway, keep going with the well, no, Ned let, Batty. Let's get to Ned. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to start doing it for the rest of my life. Let's get to Roy um, and, and the roof, I guess. But, I mean, I guess before you get to the roof, he is set up as the baddie. I think that the that is the a pun in his name, right? He's sort of the bad guy. He's like this terrifying crazy. So he's baddie. Yeah. 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 That too, I guess. But he's, he's the sort of terrifying ringleader of monsters. Right. Um, and, and, and so at the end of the movie, um, after discovering there is nothing he can do to not die right in the next few days. Right. He doesn't even know how long he has. He knows he's right up against it. Um, and, and so, he then lashes out at his creator. Okay. And I want to save the theological stuff for its own section here. Um, and that, and that's sort of the, uh, the final moment of this film's eye fetish. Yes. That well, and that's like, dear heavens. <laughs> and, and for me, that's another reason I would um, put this as a kind of weird post postmodern version of a detective story. Cause the eye is a symbol of epistemology. Right. And so okay. I think this movie sets itself up as in that tradition, but because it's postmodern, it can't, it can't get there. Right. And so what's left is for Roy to literally murder his creator by sticking his thumbs through his eyes. Right. You know? And so, (laughs) and so like, yeah, I think that's the end of epistemology. Right. And I think the second one is trying to rebuild epistemology and I'm going way too, (laughs) I'm I'm working way too hard to try and defend this obviously terrible argument I'm making. And so, uh, um, but the, uh, um, the moment on the roof for you, you say it feels out of character and like almost deus ex, ex machina. Uh, it, it did. Yeah, it really does because up to then, I mean, his sadism, like I said, just re- reaches a peak when he is pursuing Decker, right? I mean, uh, he keeps taunting him with, you know, this isn't very sportsmanlike, right? Uh, when we know, the viewers know, Deckard knows, Roy Batty freaking knows that there is no sportsmanship in this. He is a killing machine. Deckard is a human being. There's no way that Deckard wins this conversation, uh, confrontation, right? Yeah. He keeps mocking him. Oh, that wasn't very sportsmanlike. He obviously gets off when mortals are terrified of him. I mean, you know, that, that again, that's part of that great performance you're talking about. I mean, there is a, I, I won't even say borderline sexual. There is a sexual arousal that happens when he knows that his prey is terrified. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Finally, you know, we get that, you know, bizarre question, aren't you a good man? And it's like, okay, I mean, he doesn't want an answer to that question. He was, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a taunt. So, I mean, like I said, I might be oversimplifying Batty's character, but I see him as, you know, just a, at that point, the, the Miltonic Satan figure who knows his doom and is basically just trying to destroy everything he can. Yeah. What still has the capacity to destroy. I, I can see that. I've also read of him. I've read people see him as like a Byronic hero. Um, and which also, I think what's that say more about that. Well, I mean this sort of like, because he's not at the end, he does create life really by preserving it. Uh, when he saves Harrison for his life. Um, and so, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I read an article where that, it, it, I don't know how to say it. It, um, it, it just not, it, I don't know. It reconciled that, that 
kind of Miltonic Satan uh, thing and try to make him into this kind of flawed, Byronic, almost anti-hero, I suppose, uh, in okay. that way. And, and so, and, and I kind of, I find that compelling. And here's, here's what I would say. First of all, in the subsequent cuts of the movie, it's heavily implied that Deckard is a replicant himself. Um, it, it's uh, and so when I think that question of are, aren't you a good man um, is is taunting uh, on, at that level kind of only Deckard does, okay. Deckard doesn't know it right and he kind of discovers this at the end of the the uh, director and especially the final cut there's a uh, uh, Edward James Olmos's character amazing um, bit part that he plays in this is oh, this fun bit part yeah yeah he, he's great he does those little origami things. Um, all the time. And so at the end of the, the, I think it's in the director's cut too, but it's definitely in the final cut. And I'm again, if I'm wrong about that, forgive me. Cause I'm juggling all three versions in my head at the same time always. And so the theatrical version. So, yeah. And so, but you know how, um, there's a, a dream that Deckert keeps having about a unicorn. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so at the end, um, Edward James Olmos's character leaves him a, a metallic origami unicorn to find. And the only way he would know that is if he knows that's an implanted memory uh, in, in, in Deckard's brain. Okay. okay. And, and it, actually the, the, the unicorns in the theatrical cut. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, and the way I've always kind of come to suggest that is that, uh, or see that is that he is himself a replicant. And I think the um, 2049 takes up that, position on him he's he's one of his older models of replicants and that's why he's on in hiding one of the reasons is in hiding and so um anyway where was i going with this uh so oh back to roy batty and so also though throughout that movie there are moments where he's like trying to figure out emotional responses when zahora dies and when and particularly pris dies um, his partners in this kind of uh, his like criminal partners in this quest. He like, right. especially when Chris dies, there's like an attempt at crying. Right. And, and there's like an attempt at having emotions. Right. And, and I feel like he's trying to figure out how to be human. And so at the very end of his life, um, he figures out a way to extend his life and have a quote soul is by, um, saving the life of somebody else and that person's life then becomes an extension of his kind of. And I think, I think okay. I, th- I see that as the, I don't see it as disjoint disjointed from the rest of his character. I, I see it as the natural development of that character throughout the movie, which is why I kind of make him, I see him as the main character of the movie in that way, because he has a car, he has an arc uh, that, that you would mostly associate with a hero. And so, and that's, I think part of the reason for the Byronic hero uh, version, a uh, reading of him. So, I mean, that's how I would justify the seeming, how he can both be sadistic and revel in death and then do something altruistic at the end of his life. Um, um, and that amazing speech he gives is like, Oh, sure. There's no denying that speech. Like I said, I just watching it now after, you know, 23 years away from it. I, uh, I just feel like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. Um, and I think it's, uh, uh, it is one of the reasons that that scene stands out so much, but I do think if you look at it, it is logical. If you think about what he, it's like, he's trying to figure out what it is to be human. Um, and then he's trying to do those things and therefore become human. Right. It's almost like, um, um, it's very, 
uh, liturgical almost in that way, right? <laughs> you're, you're kind of going, more about that. You're I'm just, not sure what you mean there. you're going through the motions of worship. Um, and therefore you are worshiping, right? You're just sort of learning the physical practices of worship and then oh, therefore, okay, okay, okay. You know, you're doing James, Jamie Smith again. I, I'm a little bit, yeah, yeah. I'm a little <laughs> bit doing that. And so, and so that, that's how I kind of see his character. And, and so, yeah, I think that that's a, uh, um, um, clearly, for me, the place to to kind of begin talking about why Blade Runner is such an interesting movie it's it's Roy Batty becoming literally more human than human at that moment, right? And so the humans are really the terrible people, um, and the replicants are the ones that are um, uh, like actually becoming human. And and I would say. I, off, I, I do this sometimes as a little presentation. Sometimes they ask me to do uh, admissions presentations here. <laughs> and so, like, what's an English class look like? And I don't know really how to do that with a book that they haven't read yet. So I, I sometimes will show them a clip from Blade Runner uh, and, sure, and sure. talk about how it means, what it means, what it might mean, a way to read it. And I always go to the scene where he shoots as a horror. Um, and I always, I, it's tricky because I got to find the space where she's clothed. Um, cause these are high school kids still. I don't want to accidentally show them boobies. Right. Um, but, uh, but once <laughs> in the scene where they're running through the streets, there's, um, she's like running through like a shopping mall. Right. And she's dressed kind of like the mannequins in that shopping mall. And there's like that glass building you know and she's crashing through all those glass panes as he's shooting her in the back uh, as she's running through there and then as soon as she emerges she's dead right and so i kind of see that as a, a metaphor for the rest of the movie because it's like she becomes like a tragic figure he feels terrible about terrible about what he's done when he sees her body there right um and she's dressed just That's like the these voiceovers in the theatrical cut what's that that's one of the voiceovers in the theatrical cut. Oh, he, he, he feels terrible about shooting a woman in the back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And I don't think you need the voiceover to see that in his face. It's um, a good piece of acting by Harrison Ford there. But I, the way I kind of read that scene is that um, she has been just a product right um at this point she's no very little different than a mannequin uh all the way up until this point in her life she's there to be consumed by men uh in this case right because she's sort of a pleasure bot um and then at the second of her death she sort of attains humanity and crashes out of that mall and out of that glass um barrier and then onto the street where people are just like walking past her because this happens apparently all the time in los angeles of 2019 and uh and so I kind of see that is similar to Roy becoming human finally at the moment of his death. Right. Um, and then that's, that's, uh, one of the tragedies, I guess, of, uh, uh, of the, uh, of the, of the story that we have of the, of the replicants here. Um, and, and it actually reminds me, there's a Henry James story. I can't remember which one it is now. Um, but, uh, Philip Roth references it in the ghost writer and which is why it's in my mind right now. Cause I just taught Philip Roth, but, um, it's about someone who at the end of their life kind of realizes as an artist, now I know what to do, but now it's too late to do it <laughs> kind of. And I feel like uh, there, there's a, uh, there's something of, of that going on with um, all the replicants in that first movie. So death is right. what makes them human, I guess. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, where do you want to go next, Danny? Cause there's a lot, uh, well, our, our, our notes that we've been bouncing back and forth are copious. Yeah. We, we, um, I know you like to talk about music a lot in movies and the Vangelis, uh, 
soundtrack is like considered like a classic, right? And 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 I, and I think it's a wonderful a wonderful soundtrack. And and I think twenty forty nine also has a really luxurious soundtrack to it. And too, do you want to talk a little bit about the uh, um, the soundtracks? I don't really have any arguments to make about them. Yeah, other- yeah I mean, yeah, just just noting that the twenty nineteen again is as far as the the background music goes is being a film noir, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, uh, you know, saxophone solos that happen between scenes as you're moving from one set piece to another. Uh, it is when you go into an ethnic enclave, you get Arab sounding music, even if it's Japanese people, Yeah, uh, you know, I <laughs> yeah. not quite sure what to do with that. Um, well, can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think that's another sign another function of Blade Runner being a really postmodern film, you have uh, this new language that's become a mixture of other existing languages. Right. And so I think all the, yeah, yeah, all the borders of the old world have been collapsed into one just sort of monoculture of, uh, of, of just pastiche. Uh, And I think that the music and the, the languages and the eating Chinese food, um, that you bought from a Mexican looking guy or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Like all that stuff, um, is meant to be kind of just, uh, a, a something emerging out of postmodernism. Yeah, I gotcha. But then when you get to 2049, I mean, the, the soundtrack to my mind is a lot more interesting because you don't have that, uh, incessant, you know, film noir saxophone going first of all, which I was already pleased with. <laughs> uh, but then, uh, you know, when you are, uh, sort of in the belly of the beast, so to speak, when you're in Wallace's uh, Sanctum Sanctorum. I mean, it 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 sounds like, uh, and I have to think it's invoking the the Emperor's Throne Room from the Star Wars movies. I mean, mm. you know, this very deep, you know, almost Tibetan chant. Uh, you know, it, it it doesn't have a melody so much as a frequency. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a really good point, actually. Um, and the only time you do hear like distinct, uh, well, maybe not the only, but one notable time is when um, Deckard and Kay are fighting in Los. Deckard has been hiding out in Las Vegas, of course. Um, and uh, and honestly, when his ship starts approaching Las Vegas, I thought they should just start blaring "Viva Las Vegas" from Elvis. So I think that would. Um, you just had to wait a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, then it was there, right? And so then they have this like holographic image in some old lounge of Elvis Presley doing his greatest hits. Right. And uh, Marilyn Monroe and a couple other figures. It's a bizarre scene. It really is. And so you do, and it's, and, but it, the sound kind of pops in and out uh, like the visuals are sometimes there and the sound isn't there. And so, yeah, it's a really kind of marvelous way of, um, of, of incorporating um, in that case, like diegetic music, music that's in the scene with the characters, right. Versus music that only we can hear. Um, and so it, I, yeah, it's kind of a, um, a really kind of wonderful uh, 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 use of sound to to supplement the images that are going on there. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to move on to, you know, uh, since we're talking about, you know, Wallace's lair. Yeah. You know, Wallace is the person who takes over the or buy, does he buy out the Tyrell cor- Corporation? Well, Tyrell went um, bankrupt. There's like a. Uh, whatever a title card at the beginning. So after Terrell could no longer control the uh, Blade Runners, they became their manufacturer became illegal. So the company then has no more profit margin, and they just go out of business. Apparently, there's some 
technological catastrophe they keep calling the blackout. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if it's a, a another war. I mean, it's a little uh, murky there what's actually happened to me. Um, and so there's some sort of interregnum between these two characters. This guy named uh, Wallace, who's played very cre- creepily by Jared Leto. Um, yeah. Uh, very wonderfully and creepily. And apparently he based this support, his performance on actual Silicon Valley people that he knows. <laughs> This is how they talk, apparently. <laughs> and so, um, but he uh, uh, he's some sort of genius who kind of saves the world through artificial farming techniques. Um, and he becomes like sort of super wealthy um, because of his technical genius in that way. And then he acquires Terrell's old uh, properties and perfects um, Blade Runners or replicants, excuse me, so that they can um, be controllable. Um, and I want to talk about the ways in which they are now controllable because I think it's very interesting. Um, but that's so he kind of then picks up the reproduction or picks up the the, the production again. Yeah, production. He's yeah. striving for reproduction, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean that that is. I mean that's the scene that's that's going to give me nightmares. Oh God! Uh, is, you know. Uh, he actually, you know, brings one of the replicant women, you know, out of the matrix goo, uh, cause that's all I could think of in that scene. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. And you know, when he basically, when he gets a report from his central computer that, you know, the replicant isn't going to be able to breed. I mean, he just takes a blade and cuts her open yeah. and lets her bleed out there. Like while he's having conversations with two other characters. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, he is far more, I think, than Terrell in the first movie. I mean, not only a, a an unfeeling corporate overlord, but I mean, he is actively sadistic. Absolutely. Right. Um, and he feels this kind of God complex. I mean, I think the movie makes God metaphors out of both Terrell and Wallace. Right. Um, oh, sure, sure. I mean, Terrell with son. Turned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Terrell with his giant glasses uh-huh. and yeah. Yeah. Um and, and, but Wallace actually accepts that role and he sees himself as the progenitor of this is how our species is going to colonize interstellar space, right? And for that I can only make so many. They need to start reproducing on their own. And so he wants to be this the the god of a new race, basically, right? Yeah, he wants them to, you know, uh fill the earth. Yeah. You know, after their own kind. I mean, it, it, yeah, the, the, the God stuff is all over both of these movies. So, I mean, I, I absolutely agree about that. Yeah. Um, and, and I just think there's a really interesting, um, like sort of economic analysis to be made of the worlds of these movies too, because there's like both of both these worlds are completely subservient to their entrepreneurial, uh, leaders. Right. And so, I mean, there are no, there's very the only government we see are law enforcement, right? There's no other government beyond that that right, we see on city screen. Government. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I like I'm I'm not sure at the end of 2049 if they're if Los Angeles is part of a state called California, much less a nation called the United States. Yeah, absolutely, right. All we know is that um, Wallace's corporation is basically in charge of everything. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's a way in which, um, like the, we've given over all control, uh, to these genius inventors. Right. Uh, And honestly, I think that's something we should 
dwell upon. I mean, even just down to a more mundane level of like Facebook and Twitter, right? And Google, like these, these entities play an outsized role in our actual social lives, right? And in our, in our political lives. And so um, I think that, uh, I think the movies have political implication just in in that way too. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was actually just listening to, a, I think, an episode of uh, On the Media the other day from WNYC, and they, you know, the the sort of upshot of their story about Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, sort of the modern uh, tech corporation tycoon uh, is that, you know, Bill Gates might have $100 million today if he were mainly a software developer. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, it was his manipulation of copyright law that made him the wealthiest man on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. But, and so he's he didn't build that. That's <laughs> what I would say. Uh, that's one way to put it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would but, say. Likewise, I mean, you know, I, I think you're right. That opening title card that said that replicants were illegal. And yet Wallace is, you know, not only bringing them back, but also extending them. And trying to breed them, yeah. I mean that. that yeah, I mean there's that. that that's a commentary. That's yeah. A commentary. Yeah, um, yeah. It's taking AI to a new level, and 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 he says something right before or right around the time he's killing that newborn replicant, which I always think of Frankenstein when I see that too. I feel like there's a womb that she's like like an artificial womb that she's emerging from, and uh, so I yeah. kind I kind of feel like this is Frankenstein killing his creation as it's born. Um, and she's beautiful, right? I mean, uh, it's not like she's hideous and that's why he, he can't stay. He doesn't know what to do with her. Um, she's beautiful, but she's hideous because she cannot reproduce for herself. Right. Well, and, and what makes it even more terrifying as if that weren't enough, uh, what makes it even more terrifying is that, you know, his pulse doesn't seem to get above 60 when he's doing it. Yeah. And then just to add another level, you know, he is talking to love, which is the, you know, the chief, uh, replicant woman on his staff just having this very casual conversation while he's murdering yeah. this other woman replicant yeah. and demonstrating that he can do so with impunity. Yeah. And, and w- one of the things he's talking about is how like human beings had just developed a distaste for slave labor. Right. Uh, and so, uh, and, and that's why that's kind of what allows him to, create artificial slaves. Uh, and, and so I think that there's some acknowledgement of the fact that wealth in this, that world, um, and we'll just assume our world isn't the same is, is based on the exploitation of other people's labor. Right? So we'll just leave that there. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there are no parallels to be made, but, um, yeah. Um, can we, um, while we're on the subject, I think that's a good transition into women in this universe. I think that, um, it's, well, uh, you had some ideas about how they're kind of sexy and terrifying. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, this is something that begins with the you know, the first film and certainly carries forth into the into the sequel. I mean, you know, these are, and I and I'm trying to think. Uh, Joshi in 2049 is a human woman. Yes. Are any of the other main women characters in this film human? I can't think of any offhand. I don't think so. I think even that um, that prostitute that uh, I think she turns out to be a replicant, part of the replicant. Oh, she absolutely is. She yeah. absolutely is. Because so, yeah. uh, she's part of the replicant revolution. Yeah. As we find out later. But yeah, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, in this universe, uh, these 
women's bodies are manufactured. And, you know, visually across both films, I mean, they are manufactured to have sex appeal and they do, uh, you know, I mean, uh, both the, the, the casting and the performances, I mean, reinforce that at every turn. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's absolutely an exploitation angle here. There's also, you know, the fact that, you know, this allure that they have, uh, means that other characters, both human and replicant often get caught off guard by these characters. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's, there is a, there is a, a weirdness to that. You know, I'm not, uh, talking about this in a tone of approval, uh, but it's also not simple enough that I can, you know, uh, without complication, you know, sort of condemn it. I mean, it's an exploration. It's a, it's a very interesting, uh, artistic maneuver. Yeah. And I, bail me out, Danny, cause I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. I think. So especially I think the movie wants to make the point that like everything else in the world, like women's bodies have become commodities. Right. And so I think there's a very kind of um, alienation argument like uh, that you can make there about about the nature of women's um, bodies. Right. And so they become um, selling points. And so they have in the in 2049, especially there are just holograms of giant like King Kong sized, uh, beautiful stripper women, um, who like lean down and, and, and try to appeal to passerby men on the street. Right. And so women's bodies have been completely sexualized as commodities to be consumed by men, uh, for the pleasure of men. Right. in in this movie. And, and, and then, so I think there's a, a way the movie is acknowledging the sexism of the world. So if there's any sort of sexist ways that women are represented, I think it's meant to be part of the commentary the movie's making, right? Um, with the exception, <laughs> I am very unsettled looking back on Deckard and Rachel's relationship in the first movie. Like their first kind of encounter I don't the feels very rapey um, to me. Like there's a, there's a way in which um, it's he's coming on to her and seemingly pushing her into a uh, a romantic relationship, kind of against her will, right? And and she is a replicant. Um, we know that from near the beginning of the movie. Um, Deckard discovers that right away. Um, Deckard doesn't know that he's a replicant yet, if that is the case. Um, and uh, and so I do think that that. That particular relationship, while in 2049 especially, shows it having developed into a, a kind of a, a true epic romance, like true love, in its inception is creepy. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what to make of yeah. that. I mean, do you have thoughts? Am I wrong in reading that in that way? No, I think you're right. And I mean, I think that, you know, part of you know, what makes that so creepy is that Rachel is so stylized. Uh, you know, I mean, really, I mean, all of the women, uh, in the first film, especially to some extent in the second one, uh, you know, they are not, uh, what you would have seen on a magazine cover in 1982. Right. I mean, they are stylized so that, you know, the outlines and the silhouettes and the contours are very different and yet they are still recognizably commodified. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you know, because Rachel is so done up and in fact, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that she had curly hair until much later in the movie when the quaff, you know, isn't there. 
uh, you know, she seems very robotic in that respect. So, I mean, you know, uh, you're right that it is, you know, something that is coercive. It is something that is, you know, this weird power relationship. It's also something where her persona, uh, even though, you know, she is obviously an actress on the screen, uh, is mechanical, right? Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, the, one of the things about this is that once again, you know, I mean, it's not a, um, and I'm trying to think of a, a good example here. I mean, it's not a, you know, super hot femme fatale figure that you'd see in a James Bond movie, for instance, right? Uh, to where it's recognizably in our moment designed to appeal, but at a remove, that's even a little bit creepier than it would be if it were more familiar. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's like a, um, a way in which she's made, uh, she's made into an ideal of a 1940s femme, like of a 1940s, um, dame <laughs> to use the term from like a, a, of an old film noir. Right. Uh, she doesn't. Uh, and so, yeah, she's not contemporarily sexy. She represents some sort of lost ideal to, to, uh, to Deckard in that way. Right. And so, and, and Leto in, or Wallace in his, uh, when he's interrogating Deckard in 2049, um, actually makes the case that, um, they were constructed with that intention in mind that she would speak to something in him. And, and there's some suggestion that, that, um, that Tyrell had, uh, maybe, made it possible for her to conceive or something like that. I don't know. And, and he did the right kind of right, person. Right. To do. Yeah. I remember that saying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the other woman, uh, female character that I think is, um, really super interesting though is, Oh gosh, is it Anna? Is that her name? Uh, yeah. Anna, the, the, the child of a woman. Yes. Yes. She's the, um, now it's interesting cause she's got some sort of immune deficiency or something. So she has to live in a bubble. Or at least that's what she's been told. True. Good point. Good point. Right. Cause uh, I mean, by the end, everything's a lie. So that could be a lie as well. Just to have keep kept her safe and out of the world. They kept her in a bubble. Right. Um, and so she is the, her kind of job, when we first meet her is the person who creates the memories that they implant into replicants that Wallace is um, able to make uh, like replicants that are easy to tame. Okay. Um, because it's a 21st century movie, she's uh, in the gig economy. Yes. <laughs> she's an independent contractor who makes memories for replicants. It's so like, true. Wow. Little bit on the nose there. That is so true. Oh my gosh. You're right. Yeah. She's uh She's hustling, right? And uh, and so it's it, so one of the. I mean, so there's. She ends up being the child, the lost child. And in Kay's dying act, he saves um, Deckard's life and reunites him with uh, with his daughter. All right, who he's never seen because he gave up uh, any kind of relationship with her to save her life. Right, he went off and lived right, right. alone in Vegas. Right, um, like Nicolas Cage in that one movie and so um or more than probably one movie for nicholas yeah, i was gonna say narrow that down <laughs> but uh um but anyway so i think it's really so it's really an interesting character because she is like an artist essentially right and she creates memories that are sort of based on her real life she plays the role of a novelist implanting memories in people to keep them um you know, tameable to keep them domesticated. Right. right? Which is the 2019 episode. That is the new technology, right? That's how they are uh, making replicants harder to, 
or uh, they're making replicants less distinct from human beings by implanting these memories in them. By the time you get to 2049, that's something you can do in the gig economy. Yeah. And, and she's like the best at it, right? She's sort of like the best one, but that's also necessary to make replicants, um, keep, to keep them from rebelling basically. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I gotta say, I gotta think there's some sort of anesthetizing of the masses comment about pop culture, uh, and the way that our entertainment, um, is implanted into our brain, uh, artificially in order the stories that we're given to kind of keep us, um, from overturning the system kind of right. Uh, I gotta think there's, there's some intent, um, by having this artist figure who keeps the replicants tame by giving them stories that, that comfort them. Um, even though they know that their life is fake, right. Um, but they have these well, fake then memories. If you want to add another layer, even beyond that, you know, this is the one figure who, you know, according to Joshi, could begin the war that ends all of this. But she has been co-opted, not only by the corporation, but as a subcontractor <laughs> who isn't even, you know, part of the system fully, right? Right. And I mean, that, that, that comment that she says, you know, I, I get my freedom where I can, it's like, wow, that's a, that's a comment right there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and, and I think... Um, that's, I, I just think she's a fascinating character for having so little screen time and, and so important um, to some of the kind of philosophical work that that second movie is doing. Um, at one point, I, re, I can't find it right now in front of me, uh, you had some sort of um, question about the, the rebellion that, um, uh, that Kay is sort of tr ostensibly trying to be drafted into. After, so he goes yeah, and finds I Deckard and Deckard mm -hmm. gets kidnapped by the, by the Wallace Corporation. Um, and, um, and Kay then finds himself being kind of rescued by this rebellion of this replicant rebellion, kind of the, the new versions of Roy and his band. Right. Right. And honestly, there is so much other stuff going on in this film that that felt tacked on. Uh, it might just be my limited capacity, but by the time as much stuff had happened by that, you know, two hour and five minute mark or wherever they come in, yeah. uh, I just kind of said, really? This is <laughs> Now that that might just be a comment on you know my my incapacity to appreciate you know this degree of complexity, but <laughs> yeah, I I, I I was worn out by that point. <laughs> so, but but they have essentially the same political view of the situation that um, Robin Wright does, right? Um, that uh, that Joshi has, right? That this one figure can overturn the system, and we want to use it to overturn the system. Um, the the officials want to kill that person to keep the system in place, right? So there is a, an agreement. Or to, well, let's back that up because there's two authority figures. The LAPD wants to find that figure to eliminate that figure, burn the body. Good point. Eliminate any evidence that such a thing was ever possible. What Wallace wants to do is to capture her so he can reverse engineer her. Yes, Yes. And so those are two very different motives. That's a good point. So there are actually three um, three groups vying for um, that are targeting her in one way or another. Right. One yeah, for death, yeah. one for uh, leadership in a, in a political movement and one as a product for um, for development. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, absolutely. And, yeah. And so that's I think. What it reminds me of, and I don't even know what the point is I'm trying to make here, but 
that there's the, in the, so the movie resists all three of those positions, right? The movie puts um, her back together with her father in a very human, like a purely human moment, right? In which two human beings outside of um, other kinds of mechanical, social or political systems, right? Or economic systems, um, just sort of um, overcoming alienation and, and returning together, right? And so the movie takes a position that that um, removes her from any kind of utilitarian purpose, I guess is what I would say. Um, and it reminds yeah. it reminds me, have you ever seen um, Children of Men? I haven't, so, but I've heard about it. So this is a Talk movie about- that I can't stop thinking about, <laughs> and, and and it's it's interesting because it, it, the the premise of this movie is that for whatever reason the human race has become infertile, and we're basically living in the last generations. There's nobody coming to replace the people who are living now, and the world just sort of has descended into chaos. Into that chaos, this random prostitute has become pregnant, right? And so there's this political group that is trying to take her, to use her against the government. There's this other group that wants to kind of grab her for this reason. And the the plot of that movie is just taking her through all these dangers and sending her out into the ocean for the, with this other, with this kind of rescue boat, right? That's just going to take her off of the shores of England, right? And I kind of feel like it's the same time period that these movies were made Children of Men's a little older. Um, I think it's 2012 or something like that. Um, okay. Um, but you've got a, a similar mood in which you've got an idea about life and humanity, um, how and how it needs to transcend utilitarian purposes, right? And, and I think that's this movie tries to create an ideal in which humanity transcends utilitarianism, right? Uh, or util you you. Being, people being used for mechanical u- utility. Um, and I think there's something in the mood of that time <laughs> right there. And, and, and I just think you could hold these two movies up uh, and think about that question and the way they deal with um, uh, the idea of the propagation of life and, and what life is for uh, in really profound ways. And, and that was all set up by Blade Runner. Um, do you have other thoughts? And, Go ahead. Yeah. In that same scene at the very end of the film, I mean, you know, before Deckard goes in, uh, I mean, his just poignant question to Kay, what am I to you? And I honestly can't remember what Ryan Reynolds' line is. I kind of hope that he doesn't have a line there. Uh, because, I mean, that is the question that hovers over this movie, right? I mean, in this super commodified space where everything is for sale, why would this person who is on the run from the people that he used to serve so faithfully give any consideration at all to a biological father and his biological daughter who aren't really biological because they're both probably replicants. Yeah. Well, but then, then it just redefines biology, right? At that oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But like I said, I mean, that's what makes that, I mean, just one of the moments in the film that, you know, just keeps coming back to my memory because it is something where what matters is something that is ultimately. And I mean, I would say vertiginously up for grabs yeah. in this universe, right? And, you know, Kay appeals to me because I'm sitting here in our version of 2019 watching it. But then, you know, when I dwell on it a bit, I have to wonder, is there anything in his universe that makes that an intelligible, much less a good action? Yeah. Would it have been better if she had been captured and, you know, they colonized 
the next star over, you know, from where I'm standing. No. Yeah. You know, because father and daughter, that's important. Right. In that universe. Like I said, I mean, you know, the, the, this is what gives me, you know, vertigo is that I'm not sure I can answer that question in that universe. I see what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, and one question, it's not Ryan Reynolds, it's Ryan Gosling, right? Ryan Reynolds would, if it would have been Ryan Reynolds, this movie would have sucked. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Sorry. I, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm a dead baddie. I, <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, Son no, of a gun, Danny. I, I, <laughs> semester, did I mention that? <laughs> it's okay. I'm just joking. But, um, but the, uh, and I think your point is right though. I think that this movie, and, and this is where I think this movie tries to step out of postmodernism. Postmodernism just sort of accepts that everything is just constructed and consumerism is just sort of a natural part, a natural end of postmodernism. It's just going to forever just be spinning in that. There is no natural end. All ends are matters of consumer choice. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, and I feel like this movie is, I mean, in the first movie does too, like Deckard and Rachel like take off and you see them driving through the, the country, right. To get away. Right. And yeah, so those plants that you see in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which by the way, uh, some of the uh, uh, shots in the director's cut, or I'm sorry, the theatrical cut were actually leftover shots that Stanley Kubrick gave him from the shining. <laughs> so if you recognize some of that footage, <laughs> it's, it's that. So, um, but the, um, um, and, and so the first movie does a little, it touches on this, the need to transcend and, and escape these systems um, that commodify us, right? And But the first movie, I think that's what it's all about, or the second movie, excuse me, I think this is what it's all about. I think that it's, um, um, it's about the absolute need to kind of not, to no longer let um, consumer choices and consumer um, decisions define what is human? Um, what is good? What are proper relationships? Right. And so this movie right. is what's a, fascinating is it harks back almost to a natural law kind of universe, right? Where uh-huh. I mean, father and daughter inherently mean something, even if there are no consumers to choose it. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating, right? And in this point, and in 2049, neither one of them are technically biologically human, right? Um, they right. they right. are. And yet they are the most human. Again, this is what Blade Runner does. The most human people are no longer human, right? And so, um, yeah, it's a great conversation, Nathan. Do you have anything else you want to add? Well, one other thing, and I mean, this character uh, fascinated me. And I mean, I'll confess, I mean, it it wasn't technically a sex scene because I don't think uh, any body parts were shown that would have made it, you know, in our movie. Uh, but that weird virtual reality foreplay scene with joy uh, is another one that, yeah, yeah. Joy, you know, as a character is a, a completely virtual reality entity, but she actually brings in a replicant pleasure bot. And then she, what synchronizes with her in this weird iPod moment. Uh, so that, you know, she becomes the software for, but then it's not quite a perfect match between the software and the hardware because they keep fading in and out of each other. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, I, uh, like I said, speaking of the stuff of nightmares, that one's going to stick with me forever, but, but it's done out of a piece that, that she's a fascinating character. So just as replicants are created to be kind of unnaturally, I don't know. 
So there, this AI is created to be a replicate for the replicants. I don't know how to say it. They yeah, don't have yeah. physical form. It's like Siri um, in your home, right? If, if, Siri, if Siri could project a holographic image of itself in your home and talk to you, add to that Siri developing actual human emotion and, and, um, and love uh, for you as a, as a consumer, right? And so um, this is kind of what Joy is, is that she's this kind of virtual partner that lives kind of in the head of, of, of K right. As a, as a, as his love interest, but she's not real except she is. And she sacrifices herself, um, her, her, her sentience. She just doesn't have a body. So she has to borrow a body and just kind of project herself over the body of a real person because she cares for, uh, she wants to have, as close of she wants version. him to be able to have sex. Yeah. Well, I think, but it's for her too. She wants to as closely simulate that act as she possibly can. And without a body, that's the best she can do is just sort of like watch it from another person's perspective. Right. Um, and, and allow him to feel something physically. Right. And so it is a really weird scene and she's a fascinating character. Um, and, and it's like, it's taking the concept of a replicant and then just extrapolating it out one more step. Like, like what if it doesn't have a body? Is it still human? Right. And and so, and and then what both films do just to, you know, kick you while you're down is, uh, you know, after you cut away from Deckard and Rachel in the bedroom to the geisha billboard. Yeah. Licking her lips and, you know, and in this one, you cut away from the, Joy slash Marietta slash K to the giant naked billboard of Joy. Yeah. The ad selling, you know, the latest model of Joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's fa- and, and another perfect example of how the the film is really concerned with the way particularly women's bodies are commodities in this world. Right. And and just consumer products and, and what happens when one of those consumer products gains sentience. Right. And that, that's, that's a very Philip K Dick uh, who's, I guess we should never said that's the, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep is a a Philip K Dick story that this was uh, all derived from. And so that's a very Philip K Dick story, right? There's no, all of his existential um, questions never um, are without a uh, consideration of how economics um, interact with those existential questions. If you've ever read the book Ubik, um, it's a perfect example of that. And so, um, but like I said, I mean, you know, just the, the, and I I like the fact that you frame this as a postmodern film, Danny, because it is a theological pastiche. mm. It, It does not have a theological vision, but it has all these moments where the collage pops up. Yeah. And that, and, you know, you get uh, Joy referring to uh, Joe as born, not made. And, and, and of course, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, we're, we're going Nicene Creed with this, are we? <laughs> but then it turns out that he was made. And yet, you know, does he still have a soul? Because he thought he had a soul, you know. And once you've been told you have a soul, can you get it taken back? <laughs> I, like I said, I mean, just... I, I think both of these films are great. I probably like 2049 a little bit better just because they do explore all of these. I mean, I would call them very Catholic questions, mm. right? Uh, you know, uh, what is the nature of birth? Uh, you know, what is the nature of freedom? What is the nature of being un- united with another soul? What is the nature of, uh, you know, family? Uh, so yeah, I mean, 
I, 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 I'm definitely glad we had this episode. And I, and I realized Danny that, uh, a lot of English professors at a lot of colleges talk about Blade Runner. Uh, but I hadn't, so this, this is my chance. No, I'm I'm super happy too. This was a lot of fun, and and it really these are. And I think you're right. I think Blade Runner feels dated at this point. And I think um, the last couple of years we've seen um, sequels that like we don't need a sequel for that movie, but the sequel is so good, right? And and this is one of yeah, them. Absolutely. I absolutely. I would say I just saw Doctor Sleep. Um, that's another one. It's a fantastic movie that serves as a great sequel to The Shining. Um, uh, and um, that you don't think you need a sequel for, but you when it's done well, it, it's beautiful, right? And so, um, I can't recommend it enough. And and it all takes place just today, right? Um, <laughs> we're, we're all living. <laughs> We're all living in 2049 as we speak. And so, all right, I guess. (laughs) And so, Nathan Gilmore, thank you so much for joining us. If you all have any questions who are listening, um, uh, get get in touch with the show. We uh, sectarianreview at gmail.com. We have a website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Go to uh, Apple, Apple, Apple. Podcasts and uh, leave a, uh, a nice review there or any place else you get your uh, your your uh, podcast. Leave a review there. I, I still have never recorded an outro because I'm still terrible at this. But uh, so I'm going to stop bumbling my way through this and thank Nathan Gilmore for uh, joining me for another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson. <laughs> I'm the worst at this. <laughs> <laughs> that was just like I'm just tripping for 75 feet in a row there on the way out. 